Good morning. We are continuing our time in the series called Discipled, and we're kind of looking at the indicators of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, here's, here's how I'd like to begin this morning. Well, first of all, welcome, and welcome to those who are online and, and those uh, in traditions and those in kindred. And if you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We'll have ushers coming down the aisles. Um, you can borrow one of ours this morning. You can keep it if you need it. Of course, like every week, we encourage everyone to be in the Word of God, whether it's on your phone or tablet or in the hard copy. Um, here's how I'd like to begin this morning. Would you, uh, and different organizations do this, and I was reminded of this at a, at a gathering I was at with Pulse Ministries. <clears throat> Would you, as we begin this morning, just think about and possibly jot down, either on your phone, uh, on a piece of paper, something, five names of people that do not know Jesus that are in your life. Five names of people that don't know Jesus that are somehow maybe in your life. Just taking a second to do that or at least think about those five names. Micah Tyler is a well-known Christian contemporary artist in one of his songs called Story I Tell, there is a recurrent theme, nobody knows my name. It speaks of the woman at the well, the leper whom Jesus commanded to tell no one of his healing, the paralytic lowered through the roof for healing, the widow who gave her last dime, the blind man who was made to see, the woman who was known by too many men, the prodigal who was lost, the thief who hung on the cross. In fact, when I heard him live just a couple of weeks ago, he set up the song by saying that there are actually 27 such nameless people in the New Testament, all of whom encountered Jesus in a powerful way. Most of whom are known by their pattern of sin or the decisions that they have made. 27 whose identity changed from their title of sin to the child of God's saved by grace. 27 whose identity changed from their position in life to their new position in Christ. Today I'm talking about BLESS and it's an acronym. And some of you may remember a series I did a while back um, working through each of those letters. Today I'm going to recap all five of those letters reminding us what it looks like to live on mission with God. The truth is we are all surrounded by nameless people who have a name. Will we join God on mission to get close enough, to care enough to know their name? Jesus' mission to seek and to save the law set into motion our mission as followers. And so that's why this has shown up as one of the indicators or traits of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus' mission to seek and save the law set into, to, to, into motion our mission as followers of Christ. Living on mission with God means God has invited us to join him in his mission. He wants to use us, you, me his followers, in the lives of others to make disciples. We have missed the point if we think being a Christian is only about our own personal spiritual growth. 
that it's only about us reading the Bible in a year or going to church on a regular basis or attending as many Bible studies as we possibly can because everything about being a Christian points to God using us in other people's lives. Not that those other things aren't important. Of course they are for our personal growth. So the B, first of all, begin with prayer. I got scripture that should be, uh, I think, in your outline or, or it should be up here on the screen. And as we begin revisiting this acronym, acronym BLESS, we start with the B, which stands for begin with prayer. Luke six twelve says this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. This verse provides uh, us with a beautiful glimpse into the character of Jesus. It shows us his deep commitment to prayer and his dependency upon the Father. And it's not uncommon throughout the Gospels to see Jesus, this consistent solace and this guidance through prayer. Uh, There is more to this one verse than, than meets the eye. Jesus went out away from all the distractions and busyness of everyday life, modeling for us the importance of making an intentional effort to create space in our lives to draw near to God through prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, modeling for us complete dependency on the Father. It also models for us the the perseverance and the persistence in our own prayer lives. Jesus prayed throughout the night, it says, teaching us that there are times when we need to to press on and there's times when we need to press in, not giving up, continuously pouring out our hearts to God in this authentic desperation. Those times when, when you're completely empty and you have nothing more to give, or when you're hurting, or you're so confused, or you need strength, or wisdom, or direction. Because here, here, here's the deal. It was right after this prayer, this prayer that he modeled for us, praying all night in in this desperation, depending upon the Father, when Jesus chose his 12 disciples. Jesus spent the night seeking clarity and, and, and discernment and divine appointments. It also reveals to us his great humility as he submitted himself to the Father. He surrendered his, his personal desires by aligning them with his Father's will so much that we can learn. What does this first letter have to do with making disciples? Well, we seek God through dependent prayer to meet us, to transform us, but even greater than that, we seek him through dependent prayer to invite us, to show us the nameless people that are all around. Those whose lives he is already working in, that we miss, those whom he is inviting to join him on his mission, those who are lost, those who are far from God, those who need salvation. It all begins with prayer. If we don't take time to pray, we will get way out ahead of God 
lost in our own assumptions. For two minutes, I'm wondering in the silence of this room, if you would just go before the Lord in dependent prayer, seeking him regarding the the names that you jotted down, or maybe he'll reveal more to you in this prayer time of people that that he is asking you to pray for, asking for uh, divine opportunities that maybe you can uh, impart your life or share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Just join me for two minutes in prayer. And so God, we ask that um, you would you would use us, recognizing that there is nothing we can do, that we are surrounded every day by nameless people, people that we encounter, people that we cross paths with. And then there are some that we do know their names and we know that they don't know you as savior. God, in our desperation, when we slow down enough, it's heavy. It's heavy to know that unless they surrender their life to Jesus, that they will spend eternity apart from you. God, would you remind us of the hope that we have and that it would impassion us, this great hunger, this great desire to let others know. Thank you, Lord. Keep these names in, our, in, our four, in the front of our, our brains, Lord, and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Secondly, the L stands for listen. To understand the second part of bless, we need to understand what it means to listen. Um, if, we're, if we're to learn to listen, we'll be awakened to the needs of those people that are around us and where God is already at work. Maybe you've heard me use this language before, that this idea that God is already at work and we don't need to figure out how to get him to come and join us. And like, oh, I'm over here working, God. Would you come over and join me? And God is saying, no, why don't you see where I'm already at work and you come and join me? And while Jesus and his disciples continued their travels towards Jerusalem, they approached uh, Jericho. And it was known as this pass-through city on the way to Jerusalem, if you were coming from either the east or the north. And after passing through Jericho, a traveler then would turn west and make their way up through through the steep hills, 15 miles or so, to Jerusalem. So at the time of Jesus, Jericho was known as this oasis kind of city. In fact, Herod the Great built a winter palace there because of the warm temperatures and and the freshwater springs. Much like Fargo-Moorhead, right? But the Bible describes Jericho as this the city of palm trees. And since Jericho uh, centered, uh, catered to the rich and the powerful during the time of Jesus, so get a picture of who this is, uh, the city, homeless outcasts often lined the roads uh, for people on the way into Jericho and on the way out of Jericho. To try to get the attention of, of the, the well-to-do traders and the political elites, and as they neared the city along the road, there was a blind beggar. And their disability prevented them from, from being able to work for a living, all the people that lined the streets, so they resorted to begging to meet even just their, their basic needs. And this poor blind man sat by the wayside begging. He, he, he was not only blind, he, he was poor. The emblem of the world of mankind which Christ came to heal and to save. 
Beggars had, had very little hope of ever escaping this norm. This blind beggar represents for us the people that we are surrounded by every single day who need Jesus, hurting people, spiritually lost people. The blind man in the story was considered uh, insignificant by all the other people, maybe even a nuisance or definitely an inconvenience. And as he sat there along the road going about his everyday business, we are told that he heard the crowd, uh, the noise, the elevated excitement, gave the beggar this indication that something was happening. Someone was coming. So like any of us would do, he asked the crowd, who, what is going on, what's happening? And they, those who are now a part of the crowd that were passing by, told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And when the time was just right, the beggar yelled out to Jesus, have mercy on me. To which the crowd told him, be quiet. And the same crowd who didn't give a rip about the blind beggar, the same crowd who saw him as a nuisance. Listening to people is a significant part of building a relationship that will open the door for us eventually to share our story, the life-changing story that we have as we've experienced Christ as our savior. Let's be willing to set our plans aside. I will tell you this again. Um, I know it's been a while since I've said this and maybe none of you have ever heard this. One of the things I, I, I remember hearing years and years ago is that if you're ever in conversation with somebody as you are listening and you're trying to figure out where's God working, whose life is he working in, I wanna join him, I wanna be on mission with him, as you're listening and someone is to say something spiritual or somebody is asked uh, a spiritual question, the challenge is that we would, we would stop everything that we're doing, everything that's on our plan for the day, whatever it is that we have next, because here's the deal, no one Ask a spiritual question in the flesh. It's an indicator that God is working in their heart and is stirring in them this desire, this longing to know more. So we have a blind beggar named Bartimaeus and Jesus in the same place at the same time. It's this divine moment. What would he do, the beggar? What would Jesus do? Luke 18, 40 and 41. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. I, I, no, just imagine this, Jesus is coming along. He's got hundreds, if not thousands of people behind him and have mercy on me and he just stopped. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I wanna see, he replied. Jesus stopped, he slowed down. Remember, he was heading to Jerusalem. Do you remember why? To fulfill his mission. He was faced with death through the chaos and the swirling thoughts that had to be going on in his head, Jesus heard the voice of the blind beggar, 
Jesus' mercy and compassion kicked into full gear. He modeled for us what it means to slow down, what it means to listen to the cries of the people that are around us, to silence the noise. Simon Sinek says this about listening. Listening is not the act of hearing the words spoken. It is the art of understanding the meaning behind those words. We hear all kinds of people throughout our day. How often do we stop to understand the meaning behind the words? It's not what they are saying that is the most important thing. It's what they're not saying or they don't know how to say. It's the meaning behind the words. As a believer and follower of Christ, God has placed you strategically wherever you're at, in your job, in your neighborhood, amongst friends, right smack in the middle of five or 10 or 50 or 100 blind beggars who need Jesus. Are we listening? When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I wanna see. Imagine if after you listened to a person, you asked, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you suppose they might say? They might say, I want Jesus to take care of this physical need. I need help in this area of my life. Remove the weight of this, it's too much. Bring healing to this person, a friend of mine. Provide in this way, heal my broken heart. It's often a person's physical and emotional needs that open the door for a discussion about their spiritual need. You see it time and time again in the New Testament. And so we strive to hear more than just the words. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the meaning of what they are saying or asking. But don't miss it. Don't be so distracted that you miss it. Yesterday, typical Saturday, um, I'm doing some work in my garage and uh, I decided uh, I'm gonna paint the doors, I'm gonna paint the trim around the doors and Went to Home Depot, got the paint, come back, set it all up. And I, I like to think through projects. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna do this first and this second and this third. Lori was gonna be gone. She was out shooting guns. That's a whole other story. Um, but I got everything all set up, got the doors off the hinges, uh, painted all the trim, had the door laid out and uh, I'm painting the door. And I gotta tell you, I mean, I don't wanna boast. But this door looks sweet. I mean, it was perfect. I painted it perfectly. And I was so proud of myself and I couldn't wait for Lori to get home to you know, impress her. And uh, in fact, we had two doors I, I had done and Lori got home and I said, okay, I think it's dry. We're gonna check us if we need a second coat or if we just, you know, if it's okay. And kind of after it dry, we went out like, no, I think it looks good. We don't need a second coat. And so I said, well, I'm gonna need your help. Uh, we're gonna pick this door up. We're gonna hold it and we're gonna put the, uh, screws back in the hinges. And as we're getting ready to pick up the door, I looked at the door and I looked at the doorway. This was to the door that goes out of our garage on the side towards our neighbor's house. I painted the wrong side. <laughs> our neighbor Pam really appreciates a gray door facing her house now. Um, the inside is still white. Distractions. You see, I had football games, this is my excuse. 
I had football games playing on in the background while I was working. And I was like, man, this Alabama-Tennessee game is really good. I kept getting distracted by it. And that's how I ended up painting the wrong side of the door. I mean, who would do that? Distractions. Don't miss it. Thirdly, the E is for eat. To understand the third part of bless, we need to consider the word eat. But it's not about what you're eating, it's who you're eating with. Jesus had just finished healing the paralytic lion on the mat. You might remember that story. He was one of the nameless that the friends brought and they couldn't get him in to see Jesus. So they went up on the roof and they lowered him down. And you might remember the story of his friends carrying him to Jesus. The house is too full. It's a great reminder that Jesus calls you as you are, but does not leave you as you are. He meets you in your sin, but he calls you out of your sin. The reality is, Jesus calls sinners. In Matthew 9, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house and also present and invited to the party were many tax collectors and and many other sinners, not too far away were the Pharisees. It seemed like they were always kind of lurking around. They were always kind of in the background who seemed to always find themselves in these strategic locations watching Jesus every move, ready to critically judge him. Call him into question regarding his claims. Matthew, after being called by Jesus, decides the best way to celebrate is to throw this this great party, inviting all of his friends. Now remember what Matthew's job was. He was a tax collector, robbing from his own people. So who might he invite to his party? People just like him other tax collectors and people who were despised by the people. It was a sinner's party. The sinners came out of the woodwork. And the word sinners is used primarily to describe those who participated in things that were considered the very worst of sins. Tax collectors were among the kind of the same label or the same category as prostitutes or drunkards. They were referred to as sinners because Some felt that these sins were in a different category of sins than their own sin. We do the same thing. Their sin is pathetic. Oh, my sin, you ask? Very mild in comparison. So at this party was the worst of the worst. And at the table, were those sinners who had been despised by the people. This party raises a lot of questions. And we come to Matthew 9, 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is going on here? It was a great question. I think that's a great question. I think it's a fair question. But it's a better answer. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus doesn't come to the party as one of them, nor to ignore and leave them in their sin. He associates with them like a doctor would with the person who is sick. He didn't show up to condemn or to condone, but to help and to heal.
We've all been at that party. You've all had a seat at that table. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, he came to call sinners. And the scripture tells us no one is righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news is Jesus doesn't write us off. Jesus doesn't give up on us. No one can out God's grace and his mercy. Anyone can come to know Jesus. It doesn't matter one bit how terrible of a sinner one has been. Jesus offers the same blood that covered our sin. Let us humble ourselves and be merciful to sinners. In the same way Jesus was merciful to us. We who are believers in Jesus, we were just talking about this, this, I don't even know where this came from, this quote in the office last week. We who are believers in Jesus are a beggar who have found the bread, telling other beggars where to find the bread. Fourth, serve. In Mark 10, it says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in, the glory, in your glory. Talk about selfish ambition. They were most concerned about who would be the greatest. And the crazy thing is that this selfish ambition about who was the greatest that we read about in Mark chapter 10, I want you to know this, it was the second time out of three times that these two reached out to Jesus. Jesus, after hearing James and John, knows right away that he needs to regroup, bring them together, remind them of what they already know and teach them obviously what they don't know. He starts really by asking them, where have you seen this attitude before? So he's kind of putting it back on them. Where, where, tell me, you, you want to sit on my right? You want to sit on my left? Uh, in my glory, where have you seen this kind of attitude before? As though to say, you know the answer to this one. Let's start with you, James. The rulers. They were familiar with their ambitious, self-promoting, confident, arrogant, self-exalting, domineering approach. They lorded over them, meaning they gain mastery over people. They want to be at the top and do whatever it takes to get there. This is how they lead. He's James and John. That's maybe when John nudges James and said, I told you, right? Mark 10, 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You, meaning people of my kingdom. The pagan approach may appear to work as you, as you see it from a distance in the world, but not in my kingdom, that doesn't fly. 
Jesus was teaching them that the great are not who you might think. They are not the cutthroaters, those who climb over people, those who manipulate their way, abuse their way, demand their way, expect their way. The great are the ones who are my servants. Jesus was redefining greatness for them. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. My way is opposite of the world's way. The word servant um, means this. It's, it's the idea of a, a table waiter. So get that image in mind. It's to say, don't be the person everyone serves. Be the person who serves everyone else. Through and in Christ, give people what they need. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest service and slavery was exhibited by Christ. Jesus didn't come to be served, he said. He was not like the other kings. Jesus is not like the other rulers. It is hard to imagine just how low Jesus Christ went for us. Jesus didn't come like other kings to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come to be a master. He came to be a slave. Jesus was a slave to his father, to do his father's will. The greatest sacrifice gets the greatest glory. This ransom idea meant the price paid for the release of a slave. Remember that God set the price and he received the ransom. What was the price? The death of his son. He's the substitute. Five, share. I just wanna spend literally maybe one or two minutes on this. Our mission statement is to love God, love others, and serve the world. It implies evangelism and it implies disciple making. God has called us and commissioned us when he said in Matthew 28, 18, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. A phrase which can literally, literally be interpreted as you are going in life, make disciples. As you are going in life, pay attention to the nameless people. Making disciples is what we've been called to do. If we fail at this very point, then we've failed our mission. This will be continued next week, uh, this very passage. Our district superintendent, Brian Wright, will be here next week uh, speaking, and so he's gonna preach out of this passage, so um, I'll leave that up to him. I wanna leave you with one thing, though. This is from Brandon Heath. If you remember the song, Give Me Your Eyes. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Everything that I keep missing, give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Remembering that Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, we're gonna turn our attention to the communion table. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful morning. Thank you, Lord, that um, we don't have to force anything. We don't have to make people respond. We don't have to dial in. We just need to pay attention. We need to open our eyes. We need to open our ears and listen and ask, God, where are you working? 
and the people around me, maybe even people that I don't know their name, but I encounter them often or I pass, cross paths with them, God, show us. And may we be a servant to your mission. May we be the voice of the good news of the gospel. May our lives, the way that we live, point people to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.